Let me put it in picture form for you as we look at our second thought. The ark carried along on the water. Let's suppose it was. The second month really was the fifth month. So May 10, we're supposing now that Noah and his family enter the ark. May 17, the rain begins to descend. The fountains are broken up. Forty days later, so that's June 27, the rain stops. But the water remains on the whole earth. For another 110 days, the ark is carried along on the water until on October 17, it finally rests on Mount Ararat. Chapter 8, verse 4. But there it sits for a while, even until February 11, or rather January 1, January 1, of the following year, the, the mountaintops are seen, 8 verse 5. But then on February 11, 8 verse 7, the raven is sent out. A week later, February 18, a dove is sent out. Another week later, the dove is sent out again. And that time it returns, we'll see that next week, with an olive leaf in its beak. On March 2, the dove is sent out a second time and does not return. On April 1, the waters are beginning to dry up. And by May 27, the earth is dry and God says to Noah, you can come out of the ark. One year and ten days Noah and his family wait for God's intervening grace. But all that time, one year and ten days, God preserves all eight people on the ark. And chapter 8, the first five verses, are filled with God's actions. Next week we'll see Noah's actions. But the first five verses are filled with God's actions in preserving Noah and his family. And those actions begin with something very wonderful. Verse 1, And God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Well, I want to look with you now at some more spiritual and practical lessons we can learn from God's preserving intervention shown to Noah and his family during this 375 days. I'm going to give you four lessons. The first lesson is this. The Lord's interventions shall come. He promised to intervene. He promised to care for them. And he decrees his own time of fulfillment. Though God's deliverances in our lives may come slowly as believers, they will come surely. The Lord waits that he may be gracious. The vision is for an appointed time, Habakkuk 2 says, but it will not tarry. But maybe you ask, why does the Lord wait as long as he does? Why does the Lord wait so long in my life to hear my cries and to answer my prayers? Well, the Lord often waits, doesn't he, to get his own glory. Remember, we saw that from the case of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They told Jesus that Lazarus was sick unto death. Jesus abode two days still where he was because he was going to get more glory in raising a dead Lazarus. Remember that, boys and girls? 
than in healing a sick Lazarus. And so God often waits to get more glory for himself when he answers our prayers when they are reduced in our own mind to ashes rather than to burning vehement flame. But also God waits to prove and to exercise and mature the faith of his people. In times of waiting, God silently strengthens us with strength in the inner man, says Peter. And we learn to grow in grace in times of his silence, in times of his, his seeming withdrawal, as we learn to plead on him and wait on him. Because even as he seems to push us away with one hand, he is drawing us with the other to lean hard on him. God also waits to awaken prayer. Isn't it true that when God doesn't answer our prayers, it drives us to more prayer? And we learn to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? We learn to come closer in affliction to the inner closet. And we grow in spiritual experience as a result. But then too, God waits to prepare us for the mercy which is to come. Psalm 10 verse 17 says, Thou wilt prepare their heart. God had to train Noah and his family for their experience in the new world. God wanted to begin with a godly race. He desires that there would be a people on the earth who walked with him. And so in those 375 days, he is disciplining Noah. He is disciplining his family. So that when they do step off the ark, they may first of all go and to offer sacrifices unto his name. So you see, waiting time is weaning time. It is preparing time. God fulfills in waiting time, let patience have her perfect work. And if you are waiting right now in great trials upon the Lord, be assured God will intervene for you and God will care for you. He may test his promises. He will test his promises. But his promises shall not fail. Now, the second lesson we learn from these first five verses of chapter 8 is that the Lord's interventions are covenantal and timely. Covenantal and timely. You know, boys and girls, Noah must have felt forgotten many times, don't you think, in the ark. 375 days with nothing but water. There in the ark, not able to get out. He probably often felt, has God forgotten to be kind? But the Bible says, no, God remembered Noah. You see, God's perspective is different from our perspective. We often cry out with, with, with Judah in Isaiah 49, the Lord has forsaken me and my God has forgotten me. Or with the Psalms in Psalm 13, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? But God doesn't do that. God says, I remember Noah. Now, you must not look at this word remember as we do in the English language as if God forgot them for a while, and suddenly he remembered them. The word remembered in Hebrew actually has a deeper meaning. It means this, 
when used in reference for God, it means that God is acting now upon a previous commitment as a covenant keeper. God remembers his covenant. God remembers to keep his promises. God is acting now. And that is used over and over again in the Old Testament. Let me give you just one example. Genesis 19, verse 29. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. You see, by acting on his earlier promise to Abraham, God shows himself to be a trustworthy covenant keeper. So God is saying here, Noah, even when you are in the ark, when you are going over the face of the waters, and you are being buffeted, and the ark is shaken, I am a faithful covenant keeper. I will not forget you. I will fulfill my promises. Now the second thing we need to say about this word remember is that of course it is also a figure of speech. We call it an anthropomorphism. That's a big word. Anthropos means man. It means to speak from a man's perspective. God accommodates himself to our level, to our human language, so that we can understand what he is doing. So God acts here as if he has forgotten Noah, but he doesn't forget Noah. And then suddenly, it seems that he remembers. that You find that other places in the Bible too. Genesis 30, verse 22, And God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. You see, it seemed like for a long time God had forgotten, and suddenly he acted. Well, that's the idea here, you see. God suddenly acts. But he acts covenantally. He hasn't forgotten at all. And he acts in a timely fashion. Just when Noah needs it. And so what a lesson we have here for God's people. Dear children of God, there are many times you have to wait long. Your patience is taxed. You say, will God ever hear my cry? Am I just being ignored by him? Hast thou forgotten to be kind? But all of a sudden, God intervenes. God comes. God visits. God blesses. God gives a word. God gives an answer. It's as if suddenly that God is thinking of nothing else. God interposes and God takes control. Just when I can't do it anymore. Just when I'm at my wit's end. God remembered Noah. And God will remember you, my friend. When you put your trust in Him, He never forsakes the work of His own hands. A mother may sooner forget her sucking child than that the Lord will forget His child. The third lesson is this. The Lord's interventions are wonderfully providential. The Lord's interventions are wonderfully providential. You read in verse 1, after it says God remembered Noah, that God made a wind. Notice that language. God made a wind to pass over the earth. There's something wonderful about that language. It shows us that God is in control over everything, over every realm and sphere of nature. The powers of nature are in His hand. 
Psalm 104, verse 3. He walketh upon the wings of the wind. Psalm 148, verse 8. The stormy wind fulfills His Word. So when God made this wind, God is saying that all this storm and all this flood and all this wind didn't happen by chance, didn't happen by a change of fate, but the sovereign God does His pleasure in the earth. God sends His wind to blow. It's probably a north wind. We read in Proverbs 25, 23, the north wind driveth away the rain. God uses this wind and it drives away the rain and it evaporates the waters so that the earth could again appear. So what's the lesson here? The lesson is this tremendous encouragement that the Lord is in control of every detail of our lives. Even those forces in our lives that seem to be out of control, that seem to act independently from our desires, that seem to be wild, they are all in the hollow of His hand. God makes the wind. God makes the storm. God makes the ark. God makes everything. God is in control, dear child of God. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Every providential leading, every providential setback, every disappointment, every fear, every impossibility is in the hollow of His hands. And He has but to make a wind and drive them all away and give you grace to rest only in Him. And then finally, fourthly, the Lord's interventions are not only timely and covenantal and providential and certain, but they are also mostly gradual. Notice verse 3. The waters return from off the earth continually. The flood waters subsided gradually. The word returned here in the Hebrew has a, has a strange meaning. It literally means went and walked. Went and walked away. Didn't run away, walked away. Gradual, constant progress. After the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. In the Hebrew, the waters were scant. The waters were emptied out. The vapor canopy had now gone. The subterranean cavities and the channels had been emptied. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And God showed His sunshine of mercy. And we learn from that, don't we, that God's works are often gradual. You see, we want miraculous quick fixes. We want instant sanctification. But God takes His time. He does things orderly, properly, in His infinite wisdom. Even when Israel went into the promised land, God said that they would destroy the nations little by little. It was a gradual conquest. That's a picture in the life of a believer. There's a gradual conquest against sin. It's not immediate, dramatic, perfect sanctification. Not sanctification according to my time schedule and my wishes. But God returns the waters, reduces the waters, continually, gradually. He is faithful. He will care for us. The waters 
shall abate. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things, by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Pre-order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org forward slash RST4. The ark rested. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, In the seventh month, seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat is in Armenia. It's a converging point of various countries. Turkish, the Russian, the Iranian frontiers converged, converged together. The highest point in the midst of them is Mount Ararat. 16,940 feet high with another peak beside it, 12,900 feet high. And those mountains, probably the highest mountain, very highest, the ark came to rest. We read in verse 5, The waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains Seen. So they weren't seen before. That means the ark was resting on the highest mountain, and after a few more months, then the next highest mountain was seen. Mount Ararat, scientists tell us, was formed from volcanic activity. Concentric circles around this mountain suggest it was created underwater. Perhaps it, it, it grew through the powers of the flood itself. In the early days of the flood, when there were great eruptions on the face of the earth. Today, the top of Mount Ararat is an ice cap. Obviously, it wasn't that way in Noah's day. It must have been reasonably flat. The descent from it must have been relatively easy. God took care of every detail. From the year of Noah until today, there's no doubt been further volcanic activity on that mountain. It has changed shape and size and now is capped with ice. But the words of our text, however those details may be, are so incredibly beautiful. The ark rested. I love that word, don't you? Rested. A 450-foot boat, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, this monstrosity of a ship, God doesn't have bang into the side of the mountain or find a wedge in the mountain later when the waters reside or recede that it falls and destroys itself. It doesn't puncture itself, but God brings it right over the spot, perhaps a plateau area. Must have been a plateau area on the mountain. God lets it just come right down gradually, slowly. And it rests. The ark rested. 
What a type of God's people in the ark of salvation who face so many floods and trials and waters in this life, but they fear will drown them. Oh, dear child of God, I say to you tonight, your God, the God of Noah, still lives and he shall care for you. He shall bear you up and he shall carry you along. And the day shall come that you will rest in the mount of the heavenly Jerusalem. You shall rest forever in your God. You know, big things make a bang when they come down. You're on a big plane. It hits, it, it lands at an airport. There's a bump, isn't there? You feel the bump. You are amazed. This big plane comes down with such a little bump. But there's a bump. The plane doesn't rest itself down, does it? But this ark rested. And you see, God says to His people whom He carries along, like corks on the sea, like arks on the ocean, who carries along over all the troubles and trials through His faithful covenant-keeping character in Jesus Christ, He says to them, You shall enter into My rest, and all shall be well. For I am in control. It wasn't Noah's navigation that brought that ark, boys and girls, to rest on Mount Ararat. You can be sure of that. Moses, or Noah, Noah didn't even know where he was going with the ark. As far as we know, he didn't even have a steering wheel to the ark. God was the navigator. The ark rested. The Lord's divine interventions, this is the fifth lesson about his interventions, show his faithful, amazing, detailed care. The ark rested. You see, faithfulness is the very part of God's nature. And that's what we have to cling to. When we're in trouble, when we're overwhelmed by doubts and fears and unbelief and impossibilities, when we can't do it anymore, and the water comes to our lips and yes, for moments goes over our head, and we say, Lord, I cannot go on. Not another week. God says, my child... As Noah clung to me in those long gray days and dark nights, as Joseph clung to me in the loneliness of his unjust imprisonment, as Noah, as Jonah believed in me in the dark recesses of the great fish, you put your trust in me and I will care for you. I will bring you over all the waters and I will enable you to rest in my faithfulness, here in this life already, but more so in the life to come. Oh, dear congregation, serious illness may strike us. Dear friends may fail and abandon us. Our little world may crumble around us, but God remains faithful. God will not forget Noah. God remembered. You can fill in your own name. If you're a believer. Oh, doesn't that make your heart sing tonight? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. 
Wasn't God faithful to you in all your yesterdays? Why don't you trust Him today? And why don't you commit your tomorrows to Him? Oh, friends, as the waves of impossibilities come at us, like a man standing on the shore of a great ocean, seeing ten-foot waves coming, fearing he will drown, he experiences that the waves are beached by an almighty hand and come to whimpers at his feet. And so when Jesus Christ rides with us on the storm, rides on our highest waves, and says, it is I, be not afraid, when He Himself is our very ark and we are safe in Him as the living church of God, our greatest troubles He will beach on the beachheads of our lives with a whimper. And He will say, it is I, I will bring you to rest in Me. But this resting of this ark not only revealed God's faithfulness, it also revealed one more thing. It revealed to Noah a new world. You can read it at the end of verse 5. On the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen. Oh, what a day that was for Noah. Water, 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 150 days. And finally, he sees it. Yes, the top of a mountain. The tip of the iceberg. The pledge of a new world. God is faithful to this promise as well. No, Noah didn't first look out on a beautiful Eden, a beautiful paradise. But in the top of the mountains, he saw the promises of God. And though there are times, dear child of God, when you cannot see God's answers and God's ways in the valley of the shadow of death or in the valley of the shadow of great floods of waters, if you can but see the top of the mountain, if you can but see the size of a man's hand, a cloud in the heavens, God is on His way. And the God who shows you the top of the mountains, He will show you dry land. He will bring you through. He will make the impossible possible. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.